0: On the humanity.
1: In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas.
0: To say that a ship was unsinkable, which is what the whole world was saying, to say that was flying in the face of God.
1: The bombing in Oklahoma City was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice, and it was evil. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Okay, yes Houston, oh, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, Say again, please. Yes. Oh, here's Houston, oh, we've had a problem. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. It's now clear that the Soviet Union has suffered one of the worst disasters in the history of nuclear power. and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy.
0: Hello everyone, this is Aaron, and I want to welcome you to Season 1, Episode 4 of Days of Infamy. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the current third deadliest, and at the time second deadliest, aviation accident in US history, the crash of TWA Flight 800. If you like what you hear in today's podcast, please be sure to give me a follow on your favorite podcast app, like the page on Facebook, and leave a review. If you're interested in supporting the podcast financially donations can be made to my patreon page all the links are on the website at daysofinfamy.com that's d-a-y-z of infamy.com. if you have a topic that you would like me to cover feel free to email info at daysofinfamy.com and with your donation of 25 dollars or more i will do everything within my power to make it happen now with all of that out of the way Let's take a trip back to July 17th, 1996, where 230 people tragically lost their lives on TWA Flight 800. It was about innovation.
1: It was about elegance. It was about convenience. It was about service. It was about dependability. It still is. The employee owners of TWA, we're up to something good in Europe and our over 80 destinations around the world.
0: This episode is going to be a little bit different than our standard format. The pre-disaster and disaster portions are significantly shorter than normal, but the post-disaster should more than make up for that. I hope you enjoy this episode. The skies above New York City had scattered clouds with light winds when TWA Flight 881 from Athens, Greece landed at JFK International Airport at 4.38 in the afternoon on July 17, 1996. The tail number on the back of the Boeing Model 747 read November Niner 3119er. The plane had been in service since July 1971 and had made over 16,869 flights with over 93,303 operating hours. Once the plane landed at JFK, it was refueled and recrued. The new flight crew was 57-year-old lead pilot and Czech Airman Captain Steve Snyder who had flown for TWA for 32 years and 17,268 hours. 4,749 of those hours were on a 747. The co-pilot for the flight was 58-year-old captain Ralph Kavorkian, who had been flying with TWA for 31 years and the U.S. Air Force for nine years before that. With a total of 18,800 flying hours with TWA and 5,490 of those in a 747, these were both experienced pilots. Also on board was Flight Engineer and Czech Airman Richard Campbell, who had over 20 years with the TWA and 12 years prior to that with the U.S. Air Force, and Flight Engineer trainee Oliver Crick, who previously served four years as a business pilot and had been flying for 26 days with TWA. To explain a bit about what a Czech Airman is, since there were two on board, a Czech Airman is basically someone who checks the flight crew for proficiency and competency. So Captain Snyder was evaluating Captain Kevorkian, and Richard Campbell was evaluating and training trainee Oliver Crick. Suffice to say, this was a very experienced crew on board. After refueling and recurring, the plane was then transitioned to flight TWA-800, from JFK to Rome with a stopover in Paris, France at Charles de Gaulle Airport. The flight was scheduled to depart at 7 p.m and so started boarding at 6 pm. Due to a passenger baggage mismatch, a situation where a bag was loaded onto the plane but the passenger who owns the bag hadn't been accounted for, the plane was delayed and didn't leave the gate until 8.02 pm, over an hour after its scheduled departure. At 8.04 pm, the flight crew started engines 1, 2, and 4, with engine 3 being started 10 minutes later, and then it lifted into the skies at 8.19 pm. When the plane was finally able to taxi and take off, things seemed to be normal. However, just a few short minutes into the flight, all of that changed when TWA 800 exploded at 8.31pm over the shores of Long Island. 2452, so TWA 900. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I could compare that out of my nine, uh, my 9 o'clock position, we just had an, like an explosion out there about 5 miles away, 6 miles away. Bridge on 009 your K-9 up
1: to you're 19, please. At uh, uh, the 9 o'clock position, sir. It looked like an explosion of some sort about maybe 6 to 5, 6 miles out from my
0: 9 o'clock position. An explosion 6 miles out at your 9 o'clock position. Thank you very much, sir. Contact New York Approach 125.7. First reported by Captain David McLean of East Wind Airlines Flight 507 in the clip that you just heard, about 31 seconds after the explosion of TWA Flight 800. It was described as a giant fireball falling into the ocean. The accident was also witnessed and reported by a New York Air National Guard helicopter doing training exercises at an altitude just below TWA 800. The helicopter had to leave the area and return to base due to the falling debris. While at base, the helicopter recrewed and refueled and headed back out to the crash site to start search and rescue operations. Joined by several federal, state, and local agencies, after three hours of searching, no survivors have been found. And at that point, the operation switched from search and rescue to search and recovery. By 8.50 p.m., the news outlets had started reporting the accident as a possible terrorist attack due to the statements of many witnesses on the ground and the state of terrorism in the United States at the time. The day that TWA-800 crashed, terrorist Ramzi Youssef was on trial in New York City for the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. One of Youssef's masterminded plots was to place bombs on 12 U.S. passenger liners and detonate them over populated areas. Also at 8.50pm, the NTSB or National Transportation Safety Board was notified of the accident and dispatched a full GO team to the site to investigate the cause of the crash, arriving early the next morning at the scene. Due to the investigational nature of the NTSB and not the criminal nature, The FBI was also dispatched to the site of the crash due to the numerous witness reports of a possible bomb or surface-to-air missile attack. Together, the NTSB and FBI ran parallel investigations alongside each other, one looking into the accident and one looking into the criminality. By 5 a.m., at the rescue site, the teams had already recovered 73 bodies, which were being transported to the Suffolk County Medical Examiner's Office for identification. Victims and wreckage were recovered by scuba divers, remotely operated vehicles or ROVs, side-scan sonar, and laser-line scanning equipment. In one of the largest diver-assisted salvage operations ever conducted, over 95% of the airplane wreckage was eventually recovered, and all 230 persons on board were accounted for, with the last one being identified 10 months after the accident. In the meantime, families of the victims of TWA Flight 800 descended on New York, with quite a few of them staying at the Ramada Plaza JFK Hotel until their loved ones had been recovered, identified, and released. This hotel would later be known as the Heartbreak Hotel due to its housing of several different families through several different aircraft incidents.
1: Hillary and I have just met with the families of those who lost their lives on TWA Flight 800. I'd like to talk a little about that meeting and describe for you the immediate steps I have ordered to improve airline safety and security. These families had suffered enormous pain. The loss of a parent, a child, a husband, a wife, a brother, a nephew, a niece, they were still in a great deal of pain, and I know that we can all understand not only their pain, but the frustration that they feel at the time it is taking to recover their loved ones and to get answers. I also want you to know, however, that an awful lot of them express gratitude to me for the efforts that are being made by the government personnel, the TWA personnel assigned to the families, and the many volunteers who are working hard to make this awful experience at least bearable for them.
0: Pieces of wreckage from TWA 800 were transported by boat to shore and then by truck to a leased hangar at the former Grumman Aircraft Facility in Calverton, New York for storage, examination, and reconstruction. The cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder, or black boxes, were recovered seven days after the crash and were immediately sent to the NTSB headquarters in Washington, D.C. for readout. Throughout the course of the investigation, FBI agents interviewed over 700 eyewitnesses, 258 of those described seeing a streak of light, and 38 of those described seeing the light ascending to intercept the plane at the point where a large fireball appeared, then split in two and then descended toward the ocean. The cockpit voice recorder CVR, and flight data recorder (FDR) both showed the plane in normal operation during takeoff and climb before both abruptly stopped recording at 8.31 and 12 seconds p.m. on the night of July 17, 1996. At 8.29 and 15 seconds, Captain Dvorkian was heard to say, look at that crazy fuel flow indicator there on number four. See that? A loud noise recorded in the last few tenths of a second on the CVR was similar to noises recorded from other airplanes that had experienced in-flight breakups. This with the distribution of wreckage and witness reports all indicated that TWA Flight 800 had experienced a catastrophic in-flight breakup. Several things can lead to a catastrophic in-flight breakup including structural failure and decompression, detonation of a high-energy explosive such as a bomb or a missile, or a fuel-air explosion. Structural failure and decompression were quickly ruled out after the examination of the wreckage revealed no evidence of structural faults such as fatigue, corrosion, or mechanical damage. After review of recorded data from long-range and airport surveillance radars, as well as review by the FBI on all military vessels in the area, it was determined that no aircraft or other objects had been on an intersect course with the TWA Flight 800. During the wreckage investigation, the FBI did find trace amounts of explosive residue on three samples from three separate locations of the plane. These samples were run through the FBI's laboratory in Washington, D.C. and verified. Further examination of the internal components and structure of the aircraft showed none of the typical signs you would see in a high-energy explosion. It was later found that the aircraft was, for lack of a better term, rented out, to the St. Louis Police Department a week before the accident for the training of bomb sniffing dogs and that one of their practice eggs was found to have a leak in it, causing the substances to be on the plane. Over a period of three months, the entire fuselage of TWA Flight 800 was reconstructed piece by piece. Upon completion of the reconstruction, the NTSB was able to determine that the breakup began below the center wing fuel tank which had been left mostly empty during the flight. Upon opening the center wing fuel tank, investigators found that beams inside the tank had been broken and slammed into the sides of the tank, causing extreme denting. This led the investigators to conclude that the explosion started in the center wing fuel tank. But how? Jet fuel in its liquid form is extremely inflammable and almost impossible to ignite. However, in vapor form, the fuel becomes extremely explosive. But how did the fuel turn to vapors? The NTSB decided to recreate the flight of TW800 to see if they could determine the cause of the explosion in the center wing fuel tank. Taking sensors and placing them all around and inside the center wing fuel tank of another 747, they parked the plane on the runway of an airport for two hours with the air conditioning running, and then took off into the air. About 12 minutes into the flight, the center wing fuel tank was reporting a temperature of 38 degrees Celsius which just happens to be the vaporization point of jet fuel. But what caused the fuel vapors to ignite? The only wiring inside the fuel tank was for the fuel quantity sensor. Upon examining the cabling of the fuel quantity sensor of TWA Flight 800, investigators found some fraying on the cable where it had worn away the insulation exposing the wiring to the fuel tank. But the fuel quality sensor was a low voltage system that shouldn't have had enough spark to ignite the vapors. Upon following the fuel quantity sensor cable from the tank into a bundle of wires, it was found that other wires in that bundle had also frayed, opening the possibility of an arching wire sending a cable from the original cable to the fuel quantity sensor, causing a spark that would ignite the fuel vapors and thus cause the explosion. The final NTSB report concluded that this was in fact what caused the crash of TWA Flight 800. After having sat on the runway for two hours with the air conditioning running, the jet fuel in the center wing fuel tank had vaporized and then a short a charge through the cabling under the plane into the fuel tank through the fuel quantity sensor, igniting the jet fuel vapors and causing the plane to explode. In the aftermath of TWA Flight 800, the NTSB conducted inspections on several other 747s and found similar wiring exposures that could have been just as catastrophic. As a result, the NTSB issued over 70 airworthiness requirement changes for the 747 in an effort to prevent such an accident from happening again. Boeing directly implemented the changes starting in 2005 with all planes manufactured by Boeing expected to have the changes by 2007. Along with the recommended NTSB changes, Boeing implemented a fuel inversion process where liquid nitrogen was pumped in on top of jet fuel to prevent the fuel from vaporizing during flight. TWA 800 remained in the facility in Calverton, New York until 2021, where it was used by the NTSB to train investigators what to look for during an investigation. Upon its retirement in 2021, the plane was destroyed in compliance with the wishes of the families of the victims of the flight. The families of the victims did erect the TWA Flight 800 International Memorial on a two-acre parcel at Smith Point County Park in Shirley, New York, dedicated on July 14, 2004. Funds for the memorial were raised by the families of TWA Flight 800 Association. As many of you are aware, There are several conspiracies and controversies surrounding TWA Flight 800. I have chosen to avoid those during this podcast and trying to stick with the facts as much as possible. Maybe in a future episode I will revisit various disaster conspiracies, but I'd rather not focus on that as much as the disasters themselves. The tragedy of TWA Flight 800 is one of the disasters I remember watching on TV as I was growing up. I was 10 years old and in Florida with my grandparents at the time. Every time we went into a restaurant there it was. Every night on the evening news, there were updates and reports. I vividly remember the scenes showing the flames on the ocean surface and floating debris, the talk of missile strikes and terrorist attacks. And then, a couple weeks later, the media hype died down and TWA Flight 800 moved to the back of everyone's mind, except those who lost loved ones. Sadly, that's the way it goes with most disasters. They make headline news for the first week or so, then after that, they're forgotten by the public. Unfortunately, the lives of the families of the victims were changed forever. Thank you for listening to this episode of Days of Infamy. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. I release episodes the first and third Friday of every month. In the next episode, we'll be going back to nature disasters with the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and the tsunami. Please join us for that. And until then, I've been Aaron, and this has been Days of Infamy. Days of Infamy.